We are glad to have you join us for another episode of Positively Pro-Life Podcast. Positively Pro-Life is brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation and aims to bring inspirational stories and conversation, important legislative updates and informative interviews as we seek to restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm your host, Ramel Tenney, the Education Director at the Federation, and co-hosting with me today is our Legislative Director, Maria Gallagher. Maria, it's always so good to have you. It's great to be with you today, Ramel. I'm looking forward to our legislative update, which you will be giving us in a little while. Before that, I just had to introduce what we are going to be talking about today. Now, what do you do when faced with a difficult prenatal diagnosis? What do you do when medical advice is stacked against your child's life? A prenatal diagnosis often ends in the early termination of the child's life by abortion. But this fatal verdict on the physician's part is not always accurate. There are babies who with some medical intervention and support thrive and go on to live long lives, long fulfilling lives when given the choice. Our guest today is a physician and parent who was faced with such a crisis. What did Paul and his wife do? We'll hear a little while, along with all things pro-life that he is involved in. But first, let's hear the legislative update by Maria. Thank you so much, Remmel. Now, where were you when you found out that Roe versus Wade had been overturned? The historic event made possible by the Dobbs decision is seared in the minds of many of us who struggled for so long and so mightily to see Roe eliminated. What follows is a reflection of our executive director, Chris Pushaw, who will never forget the elation he felt when the 1973 U.S. Supreme Court decision was finally and mercifully overturned. Here are his words. There are two I was there events in my life I shall never forget. One was walking cross town during 9-11. The other was attending the National Right to Life Convention in Atlanta last year, when the Dobbs opinion finally issued. I was in a morning seminar, which ironically focused on how trigger bans would take effect should Roe be overturned. As the draft opinion had been leaked weeks before, the attendees were on high alert for possible protests or worse during the convention. I remember having inadvertently walked through an insensate pro-abortion rally at City Hall in Philadelphia the week before. When Dobbs dropped, all we heard from inside the conference room were screams from the hallway. While I originally feared the worst in coming to my senses, I realized how blessed I was to be in that moment in the epicenter of the national pro-life movement. We had waited 50 years, and the majority of us thought the day would never come when we could walk in a country not darkened by Rose Shadow. As I hugged my colleagues from across the country in relief, I noticed the tears both of joy and sorrow from women who had lived through this awful scourge to see this day of triumph. Sadly, the work in Pennsylvania has just begun. But we at least labor in these fields, knowing that the scales of justice tip back in our favor. And once again, those are the words of Christopher Eric Pushaw, Esquire, Executive Director and General Counsel 
of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Remmel. Thanks for that update, Maria. I remember being at the National Right to Life Convention two weeks ago, and two, I think it's been a little over two weeks, um, but there were so many people who remembered that um, being there at the convention meant the Dodds decision broke, uh, dropped. Like that was that was so emotional for them. And I just loved hearing their stories. And, and thank you for reading out Chris, uh, Chris's perspective uh, for all of us. Today's inspiration is a marketing company that is standing on its integrity of being a pro-family company. While major companies like Amazon, Airbnb, Target, and others boast in providing abortion benefits, Public Square is offering $5,000 bonus to its employees when they have a baby or have an adoption. Michael Seyfert is the CEO and founder of Public Square, and in a recent Fox & Friends interview, he is quoted as saying, we did see the world going in this direction that we believe is really anti-family. We think that ultimately a company is only as strong as the families that built it. And then for us, we are a pro-life company. We are unashamed about that. And we're actually the largest marketplace in the country of pro-life businesses, pro-family businesses. So we thought what better way to express this value that's core to our beliefs than actually putting some money behind it, putting our money where, his mouth, where our mouth is. He goes on to say that organizations that provide abortion benefits and offers to pay its employees to travel to have an abortion, he says this about them. That's the sad reality of this, is that these companies will pretend to care about women's health care, but at the end of the day, they just don't want to pay maternity leave. They're more afraid of losing the monetary value that their employees provide, so they would rather choose that than they would to empower the growth of these families. Now, talk about empowering women, like when somebody, um, and going against the grain of, of what it, the world is doing today, uh, a man who is so pro-family uh, and who stands by that, by actually giving incentives to its, its employees and benefits for, uh, it, it, it's, uh, and according to the report, it says that it's not just to the mother, but if, if the father has, I mean, if, if the family is expecting, they still give out these benefits. And, um, and I can see how that can be so very empowering to the families, to the women, and also just to the child itself. Like it's a celebration. Like even if you do not, um, what do you say? Even like there is something that you can say about celebrating a child, but then when you give this additional incentive, it's, it's almost like validating that this is the best thing that you could do to grow your family while you, while you work. Uh, and that's the way we grow our society and the world today. So this is our inspiration for this week. Um, it's from Public Square, a pro-family business. For our guest interview, we have with us Dr. Paul Saba, who was a physician and who has studied, trained, and worked in Canada and the United States. And he has also worked internationally in war-torn Lebanon and Somalia, in Bangladesh, Honduras, the Ivory Coast, and Haiti. The title of his book, Made to Live, was inspired by his daughter Jessica's drawing and life story, and it depicts a physician's journey to save lives. Jessica, who was born with a severe congenital cardiac malformation, and his book explores the challenges of facing 
difficult diagnosis through both his personal experiences and those of his patients. Dr. Paul, thank you for joining us today. And thank you for the invitation. So while your book was inspired by your daughter Jessica's journey and your, your entire family's journey through that difficult diagnosis. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, before Jessica was born, uh, my wife and I were walking in our uh, near nearby where we, we live. We have a, a, a beautiful lake close by. And we had two children. They, they call it uh, um, the million-dollar family. We had a son and a daughter. Uh, but we knew someone was missing. And uh, that person was Jessica. We even had that discussion about having a third child. And um, prior to her birth, uh, we were told on ultrasound that there was a serious condition. Uh, at 20 weeks and at 24 weeks, they did the ultrasound. They repeated and they said that she would have a, a severe congenital uh, heart malformation and probably was a Downs baby and that we should consider our options. And when I, um, I said, what do you mean by options? Are you talking abortion? They said, doctor, you know exactly what we're talking about. So they were encouraging us to abort. Uh, we, um, we did uh, tell them quite clearly that we were opposed to abortion and that my wife said, whatever God will give us, uh, we will uh, manage and we'll, we'll survive. And uh, the, as we uh, repeated the studies, uh, it was confirmed that she did have a heart condition. Uh, she had a thick neck. They wanted to do amniocentesis. We refused that. Uh, they said, uh, as we said, regardless, even if it is a Downs baby, we're going to keep her. And there's a risk with uh, whenever they do amniocentesis, uh, you have a risk of uh, causing a miscarriage. And um, we did meet with the cardiac team about the various interventions they could do. There was no guarantees. Um, and then uh, uh, as we got closer to the date of um, delivery for the baby, and it was planned to have a cesarean section to give her the best chances for survival, the, um, uh, my wife uh, got calls and they, and they even asked her, they said, after the baby uh, is born, how aggressively do you want us to uh, care for her? And my wife said very clearly, she says, I've done everything to bring um, uh, Jessica, as we gave her a name, uh, to this point, you're going to do everything for the survival of, of my baby. So that's, uh, and she was born, she underwent uh, cardiac, uh, several cardiac procedures at, uh, at six days and at uh, 11 months, they did, they did a repeat. Uh, she was not, uh, she was not a Downs uh, baby, but people with Downs children uh, love their babies and they're amazing children. And she's 14 now, she's uh, amazing. The doctor said, if I didn't know the history, I would have never uh, known that she had a heart condition. What an incredible story. Now, how did that experience shape your pro-life convictions? Well, I, I've always been uh, pro-life. Um, you know, I've always given, I always believe that you should give life a chance. But it, it, it personalizes it because you're living it. It's not. It's no longer you're caring for others. You're caring for your own family, your own your own daughter, and um, and I think it just solidified it. Uh, I um, believe that life begins from conception and to the natural end of life. Uh, here in Canada, we have um, you know abortion is allowed uh, anytime there's no um, there's no legal um, there's no laws. They've just decriminalized it. So uh, any you can do it right up to um, the, the delivery point. 
and I've seen that. I was recently um, was involved in where I just, uh, was interviewed about a 38-week-old pregnancy in a uh, local hospital uh, this past year. And the reason the uh, woman aborted at 38 weeks was because of social conditions, probably housing, lack of housing. So even that is allowed here. Uh, they call it a social crisis. Uh, so I, I think that um, it, it has impacted on me. I, as a physician, I have spoken out. Uh, I have even taken the government to court. Uh, I was able to stop the uh, euthanasia law assisted suicide for a short time here in, in Quebec. But as you know, in Canada now, it's, uh, it's legal assisted suicide and euthanasia, and uh, it's being extended more and more, even to people with mental health problems uh, starting next year. So you are a physician, and uh, can you tell us, in, in a system like this, what are the challenges that pro-life physicians face in providing real, proper health care that, um, that cares for the dignity of the person and that values life? Yeah, well, here in Canada, um, it's legal. Uh, it's not yet, and I hope it won't. You know, it's in about 10 states and districts in the U.S. It's about 20% of uh, the United States right now. Um, and it's dangerous. It's bad healthcare policy. It's not only anti-life, but it encourages, promotes people. They're even advertising in, in the Western part of Canada to people uh, to, who are pensioners, who are healthy, uh, consider this as an end-of-life option. Uh, so they consider it healthcare. And it's not healthcare. It's, it's, it goes against healthcare. Um, you know, anywhere from um, counseling women who are pregnant uh, to people who are faced with health challenges, we as doctors um, need to be and very clearly state uh, our, our approach and our values that we value life and that we encourage people, uh, you know, women who have the option to, to abort, uh, to uh, consider uh, not aborting. Uh, find out what their challenges are, you know, say, you know, and obviously we, we as physicians, we uh, explain to people that this is what our philosophy is. Uh, this is what we believe life is and um, and advocate for people not to choose either to end their pregnancy or to uh, end their lives prematurely. And what is the situation in Canada right now regarding euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide? When it first came into law in 2016, it was for someone who had what they call a uh, end of life, uh, foreseeable end of life. They didn't even use the word terminal, so it could. It was kind of very loose. It could be six months to a year, to several years. Um, and, and now it's at all stages, the law has, has made it uh, that you don't have to have uh, an end of life condition. You just have to have a, uh, some type of condition or disability and that you are suffering uh, in some capacity, either physically or exist existentially. Um, and that can be just, you know, that you and you can even refuse care um, and you can have years and years to live and starting uh, March of this of next year. People with any type of mental health condition has an option to be euthanized. They have to wait 90 days, but they can be euthanized, um, even if they're not at end of life. Uh, there is a recent uh, page of, where I supported a woman who um, is uh, had a paralytic condition caused by paraplegic, 
cause this young woman. She has uh, three children, two with disabilities. She's disabled. Um, and she was told that she could opt for euthanasia um, in 90 days as she waits for her disability uh, payments, uh, which will take six to nine months to process. Um, and so she's, <clears throat> she is, uh, <clears throat> they did a GoFund page on her to help her to try to discourage her from uh, choosing euthanasia. So basically, uh, anyone, anywhere, at any time um, next year who's 18 and over will be allowed. And Canada is looking at uh, closely uh, extending it to people who are children um, and uh, who are able to make a decisions. They call mature minors, 11, 12 year old, who are not, obviously, you know, allowed to drive, to uh, have access to credit cards, um, to get married but they'll be allowed to choose to be euthanized. Um, Canada right now is considered uh, other than children because we haven't legalized it, but they're looking strongly at it. Uh, the most liberal country in the world for euthanasia assisted suicide. That really sounds like a very dangerous place to be in uh, in terms of how freely death is administered in, instead of real healthcare. Uh, whether it is medical, I mean, whether it's mental or, or physical care. And uh, right now, like you mentioned, we have a few states that assisted suicide is prevalent in the U.S. And, and it is, um, I mean, there are regulations, there are conditions, you have to be terminally ill enough uh, that the doctor can, the doctor predicts, uh, if, if the doctor predicts maybe six months or less, then you can choose this. But, but obviously, that's even though that's how Canada started, that's not where you stopped. So what is the biggest lesson that U.S. can learn from Canada in terms of proper care? Um, yeah, don't, don't follow, don't follow, uh, don't even open up the door to, it's a Pandora's box. Uh, people will say, you know, I mean, they argued, they said, well, Europe is different than Canada. Uh, and we won't do the same. Well, yeah, we, we didn't do the same. We've, we've, we've done worse. Um, and they'll say Canada is different than the U.S., but we're very similar, you know, in cultural part of North America. Um, and even when you, you have the six-month uh, prognosis, 50% uh, of the time doctors are wrong in progno prognosticating uh, end of life. Uh, and studies have shown that. In my book, I talk about that. The, there also there's a 20% error for uh, diagnosing severe medical conditions. Um, and in my book, I even talk about people who were told they had lung cancer and they didn't. Uh, so that um, the, the lesson to lose, to learn is do not go that route. route. Um, if people ha have, uh, you know, truly uh, uh, a, a diagnosis that is uh, life ending in the near future, uh, the way to go is quality palliative care. Palliative care ensures that nobody uh, will, will, will have pain. Uh, or suffering. The, the pro-euthanasia uh, groups, pro-assisted suicide groups, uh, euthanasia, as you know, is when the doctor injects. Assisted suicide is when the physician uh, prescribes a lethal substance and the patient takes it on their own. Regardless of the route, um, the, um, the doctors are wrong in diagnosis, as I said, and prognosticating. And what we need to do is uh, give all the support people need. Palliative care is where you give all the medications they need, psychological, financial support. One study done in the New England Journal um, uh, showed that people even with uh, lung cancer diagnosis that were very aggressive lung lived longer 
with better quality of life when they had supportive palliative care. Uh, why is that? Because as people will uh, eat more, drink better, they'll want to live. And uh, if a person uh, only has a few days li to live, uh, even giving uh, morphine to control pain um, will, um, will allow them to ease off uh, the, the remaining time that they have. Uh, and uh, it will not shorten life. People think if I give the, the extra morphine or extra um, sedation, that will end life. You always adjust the sedation and the pain medication to what the patient needs. And they actually end up living longer. Nobody likes to see somebody at the last few days of their life, but many times it's it's uh, rewarding. Uh, they're surrounded by family, and that's true compassionate care. Compassionate means supporting. And there's an organize there's organizations that use those terms, compassionate care, and all they're doing is promoting assisted suicide. And how assisted suicide gets promoted is through uh, marketing. Uh, they talk about terrible, agonizing suffering at the end. They dehumanize the person. They say uh, it's not dignified to be at the end of life. And where the best dignity is to end the life, that's the true dignity is giving people the care they need right to the last moment of their life. And dignified care for the preborn is to giving them the opportunity to come to life. How can a common man or woman advocate for his or her medical needs in this type of environment? I think that, first of all, they need to be educated, not to be afraid. Lots of times the um, healthcare system and the pro-assisted uh, suicide groups uh, work on fear, uh, whether it's the preborn or whether it's person during life faced with health challenges. And we have to undo the fear. Um, you mentioned on your uh, program today about a group that's giving a, a check to women to help them to... Um, support them uh, at the time uh, prior to, to the delivery of the baby. And more companies need to do that. Um, government needs to support women uh, pre and post. You know, they need to support families. I think all parties, Democrat, Republican, Independent, whatever people are, need to believe in people enough to support them. Um, it's the cheap way to, uh, to do an abortion. It's the cheap and fast way to uh, give assisted suicide. But uh, true caring means being along uh, and supporting a woman so that she can, if she really wants to have her baby, she will have all the financial, educational uh, um, job opportunities uh, and um, enough finances to uh, afford to provide food and housing for her family. And we need to do that also for people who are faced with any life challenges, whether it's a disability or whether it's a uh, illness, because you know when a person becomes ill, often they have they can't work, and we as a society need to invest in people, not look for the cheap way out, because in the in the end, the cheap way out ends up costing us money. We we are, we, we lack uh, uh, doctors and nurses and teachers today uh, in uh, both Canada, United States, and in Europe. Uh, because we we found the cheap way out by aborting babies, and um, and in the in the end of life, you never know who's going to survive, uh, who's going to continue, and if we value life, we do it right from the beginning to the right to the end. I think what you shared reminded me of one of the speakers at the National Right to Life Convention. He shared about his his father passing, 
and uh, he said, my father was a better man the day he died than any other day. And, and after, the long, after a really long struggle with cancer. And I thought that was such a profound thing for people, for him to share, because I think we, we, we lose out on the opportunity to, to see someone uh, be better, even in their suffering. So um, thank you for and we sharing never- that. And we never know outcomes. My father-in-law, and I described his story in my book, um, <clears throat> I was visiting with him uh, uh, yesterday and today. He's in his uh, early 80s, but uh, back in 2010, he had a, a bowel cancer, a serious bowel cancer he was operated on. And he was uh, three weeks on a ventilator. He was in so much pain. They, we gave him what they call palliative uh, sedation. That means you put him on an intub- he's intubated and controlling his pain. Um, and uh, slowly after three weeks on a ventilator, most people on the ventilator say they have no quality of life after that, but slowly he got came off. That was 2010. He does Italian gardening and pizza making. He teaches my kids how to make pizzas. And he always likes to look at my garden and, and uh, show how small his my tomatoes are and how big his are. And, and he's, he's very active. So you never know, the, the, you know, 13 years ago, uh, what the outcome would have been. And you can't know outcomes and you got to give life a chance. And uh, this is, um, you know, this is the story of uh, why we need to support life. Um, can you tell us really quickly, what are some initiatives that you have undertaken for life? Well, well first of all, I wrote uh, the book made to live.com. And of course you can go onto the website made to live.com. Uh, uh, prior to that, I was in court and I described that I, I challenged the law. Um, I was able to stop it for uh, a short while. I've spoken at forums, uh, in New York, uh, you know, in the legislative committee meetings in Connecticut. Um, whenever I'm asked to speak, I also spoke in New Hampshire. I've spoken internationally at the, you know, I spoke at the national right to life conference, uh, wherever I'm invited. So these are the initiatives I've taken. Um, I'm uh, hoping to uh, bring in legislation um, to and encourage legislation to support women who want to keep their babies, um, that we need to do that. I also, um, we need to have legislation to guarantee uh, palliative care uh, prior to the option of assisted suicide euthanasia. In Canada, they never did that. Uh, they talk about it, but... Um, because uh, the lack of, uh, of palliative care, people often will choose uh, to have you to be euthanized. Uh, we also need to give people uh, proper support. So, you know, a woman who recently was euthanized, a young woman because of multiple chemical sensitivities, but she didn't have adequate housing. She was euthanized here in Canada. Um, Doctor, we, I think we're going to have to leave it there. We've run out right. of time. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Well, thank you. And I just encourage people to continue to speak to friends and family uh, to support life. If you know somebody who's planning to abort, don't be afraid to say, how can I help you? What can we do to help you so that you decide to keep your baby and bring it to life? And remember, there's always a reason to choose life.